Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Supporting Students' Belonging and Retention in Engineering Programs. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Aitza Santiago-Roman, who is a professor and coordinator of academic affairs at the Department of Engineering Sciences and Materials at University of Puerto Rico. Your areas of interest and research include outreach initiatives, curriculum development, educational assessment, and cognitive learning, specifically with Hispanic students. She also has been recognized for her excellence in teaching and leadership locally and nationally. Um, Aitza, welcome to our podcast series. It's great to have you with us today. We'll be talking about an NSF project that you are part of titled Recruiting, Retaining, and Engaging Academically Talented Students from Economically Disadvantaged Groups into a Pathway to Successful Engineering Careers. Before we'll get to it, it would be very helpful if you could share some information about your background with our listeners, as well as your current research interests. Sure. Thank you for the invitation, both to you, Natasha and Nicole. Um, so as you said, I am currently... Um, Working at the University of Puerto Rico Mayagüez campus, I am a full professor at the Department of Engineering Sciences and Materials. My background is industrial engineering, but I did my PhD at Purdue University in engineering education with an awesome advisor, Ruth Strebler. And um, right now I'm working with uh, different projects. Uh, my main focus is on, on conceptual understanding, especially for underrepresented populations. But based on my um, trajectory in the academia, I have been in academia since 1995, so it's been a, a while. And I just had a position as department chair. So seeing the need that the students have at UPRM, I have been uh, shifting more into how we can provide more opportunities for those uh, underrepresented populations. In our case, our low-income students because all of our students are Hispanic. So it's different to what is underrepresented or not at our campus. So we have women and we have low income academic and big talented students. So we are trying to see how, and through this is a STEM grant, how we can provide better opportunities for the students so we can increase their identity, their sense of belonging, and for them to understand that even though they don't have the resources that they need, that this is something they can do. And, and so that's where the STEM grant comes that mm-hmm. we're going to talk about today. So you, at your institution, what would you say is the makeup of your student as it relates to socioeconomic status, backgrounds, um, resources? 99% of our student population actually are Hispanics, uh, and almost uh, 50% of that population comes from public institutions. So we have a high number of students that almost all of our student population receive Pell Grant, right? So based on that, it's because they are in that low income category. So based on that, we have at UPRM, we have around 11,000 students, a little bit more than that. And within the College of Engineering, we have maybe around those numbers have changed maybe a little bit, but um, half of the population of the campus is in engineering, more or less. Mm-hmm. That's the thing in, in Maya West. It's, it's engineering, biology, and um, agricultural sciences. So that those are the main areas. 
it's the only campus where engineering is being taught is at Mayagüez from the UPR system, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so that's why um, if someone wants to study at UPR engineering, it has to go to Mayagüez. Okay. So we have at Mayagüez, female and male, uh, it's about 20% um, female. 80% male, but that changes between programs. For example, in industrial engineering, we have more females than males enrolled. Mm -hmm. In mechanical computer engineering, there's significantly more males than females, so it's completely the opposite, right? Chemical engineering is more or less balanced, 50%, and um, engineering is almost 50% as well. Mm -hmm. So in terms of low-income students, uh, I could say around 70% of the population at UPRM receives um, Pell Grant assistance. I see, and I'm interested also more specifically to the STEM grant that we will focus a little bit more on. How do you re recruit students? What are the criteria for that? Actually, at the beginning, we had a lot of applicants. Um, so we actually made a call to students out and we and we establish some parameters so they have to be categorized to be Pell Grant recipient to be a scholar because mm -hmm. uh, we also have participants in the in the STEM grant so we have two different groups of students those who can actually receive assistantship are eligible to be scholars those who are not Pell Grant eligible but they want to participate in the activities they are participants within the the, the grant okay so they need to have a minimum GPA of um, 3.0 to mm -hmm. be selected to be a scholar, and, um, and they have to be in engineering, okay, in one of our academic programs, six or eight academic programs that we have. So, mm -hmm. um, so basically, that's it. Uh, we do an interview with them, and we ask them to submit a, a short essay about why they want to be part of the STEM, why they want to be a scholar. And what will they do with, with the funding? What that funding will allow them to do? So we wanted to know their perception of what this program will be and the things they might receive from it without giving them too much information. Then based on that, we did a couple of, um, of, of rounds of elimination. And then we finally had a group of students. And, and from that, we did interviews. So we do interview them. And based on the interviews, we follow a rubric and then we made the decision to select our scholars because we could only give. So we selected students that were in first, second or third year from the undergrads. The graduate level, it's a different category that we use. Were there um, activities um, like mentoring activities, tutoring activities associated with the grant as well? Yeah. So the, the LCAS model consists of, uh, it was developed, the, the low-income academic, it was a model developed following the social cognitive theory from Lent mm -hmm. and the mitigation, some theories about mitigation. And we de developed some a model that uh, has different stages. So in the first three years of the grant, we focused more on the first three stages, which was trying to develop that sense of belonging in the institution and trying to uh, uh, make them uh, believe that they can do this. So we had some courses developed. We developed some courses uh, that had to do with introduction to engineering. And we also had something, uh, a course about um, literacy. So they would know how to manage the library, do lit reviews. We also had a course uh, that that's called uh, Engineering Learning Communities. So we developed that course where 
our freshman students were involved in senior capstone or design projects with more advanced students, and they were involved in that process, so they would see how those math and science concepts that they take during these first years of study uh, um, uh, are being applied into an engineering problem, right? And how is an engineering problem? So we wanted that shadow kind of model. So they will see what they will be doing in the near future. I must explain that in Maya West, our engineering programs are five year longs. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a And that's an undergraduate five years, so it includes the masters? No, it's just undergraduate. They vary, but the average is 170 credits per program. We have some that have more, others that have less. We are trying to reduce that now into 150, but it's still a lot of credits for them to do. Okay. And when they begin without uh, the math competency, it takes longer for them. So uh, in the average, students graduate between 7.5 to 8 years. Mm-hmm. It takes them to, to, to graduate. And that includes if they go on a co-op or an internship where they are out one semester at least. Mm-hmm. And we we want them to do that. We promote that to happen. So um, so we, we seeing that problem is why this STEM grant was developed, to see how we could uh, have students graduate on time, but also be successful to do whatever they choose to do. If it's going to industry or if it's to go to graduate school, that they can actually do it. So we also uh, have three courses that we have developed on leadership, research skills and uh, and soft skill, professional skills. It's a one credit. Mm-hmm each one of them and they actually have some peer learning tutors uh, that are trained to help our students within those courses to do whatever they want to do either develop their resumes or do a presentation or or anything related to that we also have a, a workshop series that develops their professional skills but also teach them uh, the opportunities that we have either in research or in industry for internships and how they can better be prepared to apply to those. And we provide that mentoring program. We have a mentor for each uh, program uh, where the students that are from that program meet with that mentor regularly. And and that mentor monitors how they're doing. They they, um, talk about the courses that they're supposed to take in the following semester so they don't lose the track and they don't get behind. A student is interested in doing either internship or research, uh, that mentor identifies opportunities for them within the department that they can take advantage of. And other uh, ideas uh, and, and other um, opportunities that are available. They're encouraged to get involved in either a special project, which are these competitions that they can go to and, and, and go in the States and, and, and represent the university. But they're also encouraged to participate in the different uh, professional student associations. So I uh, have leadership roles on those associations. So, so they do. So our students right now, uh, 100% of all the students that have graduated that are pearls, uh, participants or, or, or scholars, all of them ha- are either in graduate school because that's what they wanted to do or in industry in a position that they wanted to do. All of them. So we have 100% of success in that sense. That's wonderful. I'd say, you know, I just want to maybe back up a little bit and to clarify about the group of the STEM um, scholars, students. Are they typically the first generation engineering students? 
not all of them are first generation students, but many of them are first generation in engineering. In engineering. Okay, that's I guess was my question. And and I was checking the the demographics of the mm -hmm. parents and you will see and, and this is not strange in Puerto Rico, that the moms have more academic preparation than the fathers. And most of the fathers are just have maybe an, a, a short technical, uh, like an associate degree, equivalent, mm -hmm. short mm -hmm. technical, or even high school or less than a high school. Okay. Mm -hmm. But in Puerto Rico, education is really accessible. So everybody, you have Pell Grant accessibility and the cost for studying is not as high as in the States. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyone can actually go and get in a degree. Yeah, but um, we have many that are first generation in engineering. Okay. You know, that's interesting because I feel that generally speaking, engineering is a very particular kind of field and creates a lot of this, um, you know, what is it called? Imposter syndrome sometimes among the students and, you know, something I've heard, especially for females. And, and you mentioned in the beginning that for the first two or three years, you help STEM students develop the sense of belonging to a community, develop the sense of confident. And so I'm just curious to hear what is this experience like and what kind of activities do you use to help the students to feel actually as part of the engineering community? Because that's a tough one. And also, if you don't mind, maybe males versus females, how does that work? Yeah. Um, generally speaking, um, we try when we bring um, people that are either in industry or in graduate school, depending on the topic that we're going to be referring to bring females to be the speaker because uh, you know literature shows that to students relate more into that I mean industrial engineering here has a lot of females but most of the faculty are females they're like okay. female faculties the rest are females uh, within that department so that has shown to, to prove to be right so we choose to bring people from either industry or that are in the academia uh, that are females so they relate better also, we have many students that come from public school backgrounds. I am, I came from public school, so I am a result of that. And when students see someone that is from here and that went to public school and it's been successful, either have their own companies or, or in a, in a position at a, at a company that is well known, uh, those things, um, they relate to that. So mm -hmm. it's just providing them with a voice that they can relate and that mm -hmm. has been to work and also having that mentor telling them because they're really scared i mean many of our students have never been out of the island and just thinking about the idea of getting into a plane and living alone on a deep in a place they don't know to do an internship that's like i'm not going to do that so trying to overcome those very barriers, and, and, and that's the important role of the mentor. That mentor can give that confidence to the student that apply, you are good, you're going to be successful in this. Uh, don't be shy. You're not going to be alone. Uh, there are other students that are going there. The companies, we are, we are really lucky that the companies that hire our students, they actually take care of them as if they're their kids, they're, they, they pay attention of how they're doing and, and what they're doing. We have students with health conditions mm -hmm. and they are aware of that and they pay attention. So they're really taken care of and they know that and they know that we care about them. And when they know mm -hmm. that we care about them and that we want them to be successful, 
And actually, many of the students chose to be part of the STEM grant, and that's why we have so many participants. It's because they wanted that mentorship. They didn't care about the money. That's why we have 92, 96 scholars in the first year. That's a lot for an STEM grant. Usually it's like five, 10 students only. We had 90 participants in our in our uh, program and it was because they valued that mentorship and they knew that I was going to help them to be successful and they they value our mentors and see how successful they are and they want that too so they're not uh, questioning whatever the mentor is is advising them to do because they know it's for their own good and and, and we have an excellent group of mentors that was specifically selected so that students that will have empathy with the students and that the students could relate with them and, and feel comfortable with them, talking with them. So I guess my just quick question to clarify, is it usually one on one student to a mentor relationship or is it a group of students with a mentor? Can. Sometimes it was it's a group, but uh, the mentors hold office hours, equivalent to office hours. And the student make an appointment individually and they meet it individually with them, either in person or through and online. So whatever the student chooses, that advisor separates a time slot within their week to work with the student. One of the biggest concerns and, and issues we have had is to deal with the time and commitment that the mentors mm-hmm. take to, to do this. It's a lot. And, stu- and mentors complain about that, but also students complain about that as well. So that's something that, that they know that it's happening, uh, but they also value that the short time they have, they spend it with them. They are appreciative of that. So I was, um, you mentioned this a little bit in your last response. That's kind of where I wanted to go. And it sounds like the students really benefit from having these one-on-one type interactions with mentors, this community building relationship rich experience, if you will. Well, halfway through your grant, the world was turned on its head and everybody had to move online. So I guess my question is, how did you as a program, as a university deal with that abrupt change? How did you still support your students, even though now you were having to deal with an online environment, which we're realizing really identified, illuminated, if you will, that students had access issues? It is kind of interesting your question, Nicole, um, because um, prior to the pandemic, we had a Category 5 hurricane that destroyed the island right just where we started the grant. Mm-hmm. So we had to deal with adversity since the beginning, basically. So we did the selection and then we had the Hurricane Maria. And there was no electricity, there was no connectivity, and and it was challenging to deal so first, we decided to stop everything that had to do with the activities of the grant and focus on the needs of the student. Mm-hmm. So uh, we uh, had excellent ad- uh, advisors within the university that have the expertise, and we connected those students immediately. We had communication with that professional advisor to see what they're doing, to see what they're needed, especially and the mentors to identify the needs they had. So someone did not have electricity or internet or something. How could they be thinking about the, the grant if they don't have the basic needs? So, so, so for the hurricane, first we have to do that. And that I, I think 
fine-tuned the relationship between us because they really saw we did care about them, okay? So dealing with that human side first and the needs that they had as 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 a person in in times of need was really important. When COVID hit, then we had to deal with the online, uh, switching to something that is online. So we started doing some activities for them to like uh, get together and hang out and something to be fun because we didn't do anything that had to do online before the pandemic. So just switching to see how we are doing this. And we try to use the same resources that the university uses so we don't have them learn new systems. So we use Teams or Google Meet at the university. So those were the two things we were using, right? Um, and, and just switching to whatever they needed, dealing with stress were many of the topics that we had, how to manage your time, how uh, can you uh, deal with conflict, uh, topics that related to that, right? And, and so we switched many of the uh, uh, webinars that we had to actually be able to help the students to, to, to get through whatever they were going through personally so they can be successful academically. It was challenging. It sounds like it was. Yeah. It still is. We're still, we just have another hurricane and our students are really resilient. So mm-hmm. that's why they're so good and so successful. It's interesting also you said this first thing, which, you know, obviously comes by necessity, but I think it's also even in foundations of the way that you're running the STEM program is appealing to the human needs, like you said, first, before mm-hmm. anything else can be addressed, which I think is very unique and very special and probably really, really important component of building the sense of belonging to a community before you even get to the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I learned at the symposium that, that we were a couple of weeks ago is that we didn't know how big the impact we were making on our STEM grant until we actually went and see what others were doing at the symposium. And I think you are hitting the nail. The success of, of our STEM grant relies because we develop the activities based on whatever the student needs and not the opposite. We don't try to make the student fit into the program. It's the other way around. We make the program fit the student's needs. And I think that is what made it so successful. And we are actually working on on submitting a new uh, grant uh, soon. So we are uh, identifying because now the students we are receiving now have completely different needs than those that we were working with the STEM grant. So we need to make change to be able to cover the needs. So what are we going to do as an institution to manage that? What opportunities are we going to bring those opportunities so they can be successful? Because we have to adjust to whatever the needs the students have and, and what we are receiving. It's everywhere. The problem is everywhere. It's not just here. So, so we are trying to do a needs assessment to mm-hmm. see then how we are going to uh, develop a model that fits to that population, which is different to what the current students at the STEM grant. So how much, um, earlier you mentioned these three seminars that the leadership, I forget the other two, but the three seminars that you have the students take. The people who teach these seminars or who run them, sorry, 
are they also members of the grant or are they just regular instructors who um, interact with the students or advisors? We have, uh, we don't use the mentors to do the, the, the talks. Mm -hmm. They are, they are like, uh, they are, they, they are the ones who organize it. Like they're behind the scenes of it. But we, we bring people from outside. So we oh, have okay. faculty that are not mentors that are successful in engineering. We have a, a, a young female professor. She's from my department and she talks about the GRE and the different fellowship opportunities for the students. And she's really young, so she's relatable to the student. We had had a graduates that are in industry that has been really successful or or in, in entrepreneurs that they have their own business because mm -hmm. that was our topic we had once. And we tried to look for people that graduated from Maya West and that they're being successful in their different careers. We also have other faculty. We have one faculty actually from a department also that is in charge of doing the, um, the reviews for the EIT, EIT certification, the fundamental engineering exam, in, uh, because we want to promote for them to take that exam and become professional engineers if that's what you want to do, right? If that's something that you want to do. So it's not a scholars. We had another professor who talks about ethics and, and responsible conduct of research and appropriate technology and to think about these ethical uh, issues and concerns uh, that an engineer should think of and establish what they think it's good or not and how to apply it. So getting that into the, what their thinking process should be as engineers. So, so none of the speakers have been the mentors of the, of the program. Hmm. At this moment, we haven't done that. But we are all present, uh, if we can, on, on these activities. We also do a lot of social activities for them. Mm -hmm. So, something in Thanksgiving, we do something at the end of the semester, and we have get together, we have food, music, and, and it's just a time for them to share. We do like a, it's not a graduation, but like an award ceremony. So we, we mention a, the things that they did during that year, and that is being like outlined. We have like a photo, we do like a one slide page, PowerPoint, where they have their picture and the things that they have accomplished this year. So we do that at our ceremony as well. So, you know, also a question I have about students in the STEM program and other students in the program who are not part of the NSF grant, how comfortable they in the interaction with each other? Because sometimes, you know, I've heard that in some other STEM grants, students tend to be in their own group. And it's hard to kind of for them to open up, but I have a sense that's probably not the case here. No, that's not the case because we don't differentiate in terms of activities if you're a scholar or not. Mm -hmm. They're all invited. I mean, they're open to the community. So mm -hmm. you don't have to be part of an STEM grant to participate on the different activities that we do. So unless they have told each other who is who, they don't know who is receiving a scholarship and who's oh. not. Oh. At least from our side, they don't get labels. So. Mm -hmm. Then they're all together, they're all invited together, and these activities are all optional, like they're not required to do them because as part of the SM grant, uh, we, you cannot force anybody to do anything they don't want to. But mm -hmm. we have a, a good participation uh, based on that. It depends on the time of the semester when they're getting a lot of work. It usually tends to lower the attendance of the activities. That's normal. Uh, there's conflict with exams and things like that at the same time. So mm -hmm. 
we cannot make them lose an exam to do this. So, yeah, but our numbers show that those who participate actively on all these activities are being uh, really, really successful. So they take they're having more advantages in that sense. Mm -hmm. But we invite the whole community to the activities, not just the STEM. I don't think I've heard of that before. That's actually pretty cool. Um, usually all the STEM grants I've heard of or been aware of, there's a separate thing for the scholars and something else and for the students. That's a really good point. Yeah. Unless there's social activities because we have to buy food and things like that, that's close only to the scholars or participants because mm -hmm. they are included. But the workshops and the seminars and the other the courses are open to everybody. So, mm -hmm. mm. so to maybe focus a little bit on the use of technology and kind of supporting student learning in your program. Were there any practices, any lessons learned from online teaching, interacting with students that you are using now that you found to be very helpful that you kind of bring in back to the face-to-face -face teaching? Well, I think that, and I think this happened everywhere. I think that switching to online has made more evident the difference between the power of acquisition that we have. So um, many students didn't have a computer to log into or internet, reliable internet to connect to courses. They had to share a computer with two more siblings in the house and their parents working at home. The internet bandwidth was not good enough for the connectivity. So that made you aware that you don't, you don't know what's behind that camera and the struggles that are happening, they're going through. So in my case, it's just understanding that some people are struggling and they don't say anything because they feel ashamed or shy to do something about it and you cannot take for granted and assume that everything it's good because it's not. And and there were a lot of students that were struggling. I haven't been teaching since I was department chair. I was department chair for six years, so I wasn't teaching. But I was dealing with the conflicts of the students that were struggling during those periods. Now that I'm teaching, I am actually going through that because sometimes we have to teach online because of the hurricane or the strikes that we have at the campus. We have to switch online, and it's not something easy to do. And students, you know us, we like action, participation, and the body language tells us if a student is understanding or not. So that gets lost completely because they cannot turn on their camera. So you don't know what's happening behind the scenes, mm -hmm. right? So, so it made you more aware of the difficulties that the students are uh, having to actually come to campus and study. And complete their degrees. That I can I can sense more and see more. So it was more evident. It's not that it didn't happen before; is that it came out. It, it was it, it flourished. So it came into the light. I don't know how you say that in English, but you know. Mm -hmm. So having identified these challenges, um, do you think it makes instructors? I mean, it seems like you already have a good setup there where instructors and mentors are really invested in students success. But how do you think that impacts overall how people design their courses now that they I mean, like you said, hurricanes are not new. But now when things really came to light about how students were struggling with online interactions, do you think that has any impact on how 
courses are designed moving forward? That is a tricky question. Yeah. So as in everywhere, you have faculty who care about this type of things and you don't have faculty that are only there to cover material and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. So for the faculty, nothing is changing and it's whatever is easier for them to do. And unfortunately, that should not happen, but it happens. Now, those who do uh, care and want to do better, frustration is really high. So and tell that the faculty is exhausted, is tired, is is um frustrated, so frustrated because we don't have the resources to help them overcome these issues. We don't have enough technology to do that or human resources to help them to, to do better. Because, you know, we are struggling. At the UPR system, we are struggling financially. So whatever few resources we have, we use to cover the minimum to mm-hmm. continue. You know, it, it goes into payroll, basically. Mm-hmm. So we don't have, a, even though we have an office that... They're excellent people. They're working that will help you to work with your online courses and materials and all that stuff. It's limited. So mm-hmm. the pace that the class goes is not the pace that you can get help to for yeah. it. So many faculty are not teaching online, have decided to move away from that and keep in the in-person class teaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, from 120 sections that we have this semester in my department, only two are online or hybrid mode. The rest are in person. And you think part of it is perhaps, like you mentioned, is um, just accessibility to technology on both sides for the students and on campus as well. Yeah. And it's, and it's more challenging because the students that we are receiving need more, at- need more attention. Because mm-hmm. of the things that have happened in the last five years. I, you know, I, I have a question. So I know that there's sort of, I think for a lot of people, for a lot of instructors, there's a, sort of a mix, mixed emotions about experience of teaching online. And, but at the same time, you know, there were some things that worked really well, some things not so much. And there are many variables that affected that. Like you're saying, one of them is just accessibility, because how can you really understand what worked well or what not when students don't have access to the internet or to just computers. So I guess my question is a little bit hypothetical. If you could imagine that finances were not a problem for your school and you could make decisions in your department for students to have a certain setup that related to the technology, what would you keep? Would you continue to support some part of the classes for online education, maybe include some of the hybrid students, especially considering also the setup, like you said, the weather challenges and other things for students. So if money is not an object, then um, you can do anything you want. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Uh, One thing that we had an advantage when COVID came is that we had classrooms with technology that would allow for the online teaching. So all of our classrooms has uh, equipment that allows for that to happen. Okay. So it wasn't meant to be like a whole course or things like that, but um, many faculty that are not techie, you know, mm-hmm. techie, uh, technologically um, um, inclined. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they will go, we have these uh, visual projectors that they will put a paper and they will write on it and that gets, students will see that in their homes. 
we had to do a video or things that complicated because that that was challenging for many of them to do. So we do need the technology. And according to whatever the skills that professor has with technology, we, we should have the options. And we have students that love to take online courses and that should be available for them to do as mm-hmm. well. Most of our students don't like the online teaching, especially mm-hmm. engineering. They don't like the courses to be online at all. So they say it's difficult, they don't understand the problems, they want to have the professor close so they can ask the questions. So so depending on the on the course, uh, that my daddy. If I had unlimited resources, mm-hmm. I would start with uh, professional development for the faculty to try different things than just lecturing. Many of our faculty just do lecturing. It's a passive learning environment. Online, that doesn't work at all because students get bored. And, you know, that doesn't work even in person. That's not effective to do anymore. Um, so there must be some kind of more participation for the students within the classroom. So if you ask me, I think we would need to provide some professional development training for faculty to do more active action, learning, uh, try more group partic- participation, group projects. Students hate it, hate it more because they copy. Mm-hmm. Um, so just to see what, how we switch this mentality of the students, which is hard to do, of just getting a good grade, then learning for the long run, for the long run, like that kind of things. We need that. We need, we need more of that. But students need to understand why it's important, what we are, they're, they're being taught. And I think we are missing on that implementation projects. Uh, I love to do a project in my class. Uh, many faculty that are teaching the same class, they don't do projects. I like to do real, real, life problems in the class and my evaluations have always mentioned students that's where I learned what was needed mm-hmm. that is where I learned it's not in the exams but how do you provide a grade without giving an exam that's something that many faculty does not think that is possible to do and it's not easy to do so they need training they need training not just for the online because in the in-person our population of students is different we have to do things differently uh, instead of trying to then fit how we learn, it's us trying to fit how they learn now, which is completely different. So as you think about, you know, from one academic year to the next, especially with the first year students, you have a different set of students coming in every time. And especially now with all the disruptions that their high school, whole high school career have been between the hurricanes and the pandemic and the earthquakes and stuff. Do you find yourself modifying every year your approach? Um, you did talk about aligning it with students' needs, but how how do you make the switch from year to year? Different set of students, every time you have a new set of faces, you have a new set of needs. Do you do some kind of diagnostic type inter, introductory activity just to get a feel for who's in the room? And then you design your learning experience for the students. I don't know if it's experience. So many years that I've been in academia, um, mm-hmm. after the first two weeks, I can tell. I can yeah. tell just by the way they behave. So, for mm-hmm. example, this semester, it's been tough for me and frustrating for me because I am explaining something and I'm saying this is important, this is coming the exam and no one is taking is taking notes. So 
but they wait for the class to be over to take a picture. So when I see that, I'm like, okay, we need to do something different here. So, um, so I've been switching and seeing what I can do or not. I like to ask students after the first exam, I give my students a, an anonymous survey of what they like more about the class, why they dislike more about the way I teach and what things they would like me to do. And I also ask about the exam. And I do that uh, too. Uh, after each exam, I do that survey so that I am constantly changing what I do and how I do stuff. Uh, I do a backward design approach. So they have to read first to an online quiz about the concepts and then they come to class. I explain the concept and they're working. I put them to do the problems. And I'm just around looking and answering questions and seeing and probing questions to them. And then when they're finished, we put their results in the project, in the visual projector and what's the error. And we discuss within the group. Right. I like to do that. And I have many students that are repeating the class and they tell me, oh, this is really different to what we I did on the class where I took it last semester with a different professor where we're just coding and coding. It's an introductory program class. Like. I do a lot of algorithmic thinking within the class because I think that's important for them before they enter into coding, right? And we don't know, but first they have to do the thinking part and the design part, the flowcharts and testing the flowchart to see if it works or not before getting into the coding component. So they get more engaged. They participate more. You always have one or two that don't care and they're on their phones sitting in the back part of the classroom. And I cannot do anything about those. Not everybody can get a good grade in the class. And if they are not interested, then I don't lose my time on those mm-hmm. I have to do that. So I put my effort on those who want to take advantage of the class. And I do my best for them to be interested in the class. But if they don't want to, it's yeah. too bad. And, 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 I'm, and it's bad to hear about that, but um, that is what happens. So, yeah, it changes and it changes based on students. Uh, at the beginning, you get a sense, but I also probe students. So they will tell me because I think I'm doing like excellent, but they don't like it. They hate it. So I need to know that as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I also think in a little bit more generally, what advice you can give to many other engineering departments, maybe greater STEM departments who are so concerned and been concerned for many years how to attract students, how also to attract students, perhaps who are more financially at a disadvantage, and how do you attract students first, but also how do you retain students? And if you can share a couple of the things from your experience, what advice would you give to other institutions, departments who are trying to figure it out? I think for attracting students, we actually don't have that problem in my OS because we get a lot of applicants, but, mm-hmm. um, but regardless, you know, I'm advisor of the ASE student chapter at my OS. And one of the biggest roles we have is outreach, is promoting engineering. What is engineering and the engineering programs at my OS into middle school and high schoolers. So we do different activities. So we visit the schools and so we go out of the class of the university and get the university to the schools and to the students. But we also do activities that are in campus and we bring them to the campus and their parents. So they will learn more about the different programs and Maya West and they can see and we have the special projects and they can see the solar boat or the bridge or the 
the different, the moon's buggy or the different things that this association do. And those things, they love it. So that's how do you get them to fall in love with engineering and Maya West, right? But then I think the most important thing is not just admitting the students, it's retaining the students. And I Mm -hmm. think that is where we need to work, is shifting this mentality from admission to serviness, to serve the students' needs. So I think that is the clue. It's understanding what those needs are so we can serve better the students instead of trying to make them fit into whatever we, we have. Is how, uh, and it was frustrating as an administrator to do this because uh, there's a limited thing that I, I could do at my department. I was a, I was a servant. I mean, my, my job as an administrator is to serve the faculty or the students or the staff that are within, uh, that we serve in the department that are influenced by us, either taking our courses or faculty that are teaching in the department. That was my role to serve. And I had to understand what the needs they had. So that transfer into the STEM grant. So it's switch, switching a mind, uh, the mindset of uh, serving the needs of the student, and you need to know what those needs are. And usually when you are in administrative positions or you have a big school, uh, that is really hard to do because there are so many. And how can you do that? I mean, how can you do that in a classroom that has 170 students? I have 24 in my class. Mm-hmm. So big size classroom, that's really hard to do. So um, it works in many institutions, but in Maya West, not necessarily that is going to be as effective because you cannot get that in person. I cannot do what I do with 100 students. I cannot go through everybody in the groups and see what they're doing and try to discuss as many things as, as they have done if I have a big size classroom. So so it depends. So not everybody is the same, but in an institution like Mayagüez, where there are so many struggles and needs and so many uh, students are coming with so many deficiencies, uh, things need to be done differently. So. Saida, thank you so much. This was such an engaging thank conversation. I didn't know all the things you were doing at your university, so this was quite illuminating. Thank you for spending this time with us. Right, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys, for the invitation. It's an honor. I have listened to some of your podcasts, and I'm like, wow. When you invited me, I said, I don't have material for a book. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>